I'm Chris Barker. And I'm Will Betts. And this is the Music Tech My Forever Studio podcast. In this podcast, we speak with producers, DJs, audio engineers, and industry figureheads about their Fantasy Forever studio. The studio will have to be created within the confines of our completely non-arbitrary rules. And importantly, it's a studio our guests will have to live with forever. Yes, our classic rules. Our guests can select a computer, a DAW, and an audio interface first. Then they can choose six other bits of studio kit plus one luxury item. But Chris, what if they want a selection of plugins combined into a single package? No, 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 no. No bundles! No bundles. Joining us today is super producer Butch Vig. Butch Vig is the man behind era-defining 90s records by Smashing Pumpkins and Sonic Youth, and of course, Nevermind by Nirvana. And he's worked with more influential bands than you can shake a stick at. Yes, but not only a prolific record producer, Butch is also the founding member and drummer of the band Garbage, and has been in tons of other bands too, including his latest project, Five Billion in Diamonds. Okay, well let's get to it. This is My Forever Studio with Butch Vig. Welcome. Hello, Butch. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I love shows like this because I am a nerd. Yes, welcome. <laughs> yes. So we usually kick off, um, I don't know if you've heard the, much of the podcast before, but we usually kick off about sort of where you would put this studio in the world and why. I mean, what kind of makes the perfect setting of a studio for you? I mean, does it matter where it is at all? Uh, I mean, it's nice to have a studio with a view. I, I can't tell you how many studios I've worked in are like caves. Mm. And I understand that in some ways not seeing the sunlight is good if you're working 12 or 14 hour days. You know, you just, you don't even know what time it is. I've been in studios where they don't have clocks on the walls. Well, like casino but style. I prefer studios that have big open control rooms with high ceilings because most of the time in studios, people seem to spend in control rooms. And I do like it with a view. So if you're going to have a view, why not say, uh, you know, Northern California looking at the ocean or Hawaii possibly? If you're going to get a view, well, let's get a good view. I live in California, so I'd probably say somewhere on the coast in California. So was was California a choice move for you for work or because, again, because you, you, you really like, like, you know, the town and the city that you're in? You're in, you're in Silver Lake, right? I live in Silver Lake, which is just east of Hollywood. My wife is from here, and I met her uh, in the music industry. She used to do A&R at DreamWorks. She signed Nelly Furtado years ago. Huh. And um, it was easy for me to move here because she was, was ha- sort of had to stay here for work. And I've traveled a lot as a producer. I used to have my own studio in Madison, Smart Studios, but I've worked in London and Chicago, New York and Austin and L.A. and Seattle and Vancouver, wherever. Too many places to mention. So it just seemed like it was an obvious uh, uh, move for me to come here. So we're going to choose California Sea View, maybe? Yeah, I'm going to say Malibu, looking down uh, over the over the bluffs into the ocean. Maybe just, uh, you know, half a mile down the street from Rick Rubin. <laughs> that's... Uh... <laughs> I'll go over. I'll go over and have some tea with Rick. That's like that's the second, <laughs> the second guest that's basically wanted. You can just move Rick Rubin out. It's you know you can do whatever you want on our podcast. Let's just move Rick out. That's right. I can. I can kick his butt right out. <laughs> You're allowed. Rick's yeah. going to have lots of neighbors actually after this podcast. Uh, was, it, was it Drew? I think Drew Bang had the uh, had had wanted wanted next door to to Rick as well. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, there are some incredible studios at Malibu. Well, some incredible homes too. 
Um, and if you can get that kind of view, why not go for it? You know, like I said, I've spent too many years and too many hours in caves. And uh, anytime you can get a, a view with some sunlight, that's a good thing. And what about the actual vibe and decor of the studio? I mean, it, does that matter? I mean, again, you must have worked in some dingy places and some quite glamorous places. I don't really like uh, glamorous or high tech. They always seemed too corporate to me. Um, I've worked in some studios that are spit polished and shiny. Um, there was one in particular I used to work at in Chicago, um, CRC, which is a great studio, but they made all their money in the daytime doing ad work for big clients like Ford, you know, trucking companies, coffee companies, uh, beer companies. And uh, I would get in there at night, you know, we'd get in um, like 6 p.m. till 2, 2 a.m. And uh, it was a great studio, but it was always run very corporate and the, the vibe was always very cold, I thought. I like studios that have sort of a, a softness to them. I have these uh, homemade sound panels in my home studio here, and it's based on a Turkish rug that I have that's upstairs in my living room. So that design is actually from my Turkish rug. And I kind of like things like that because it softens a little bit and gives it some color. Um, but as, as long as it's not too shiny and too corporate, I'm going to be okay with it. But it has to have a high ceiling in the in the control room. I, I don't like them when they're uh, more boxy rooms. I just like to have a lot of air moving around in the control okay. room. And is that is that because you're also planning to record in the control room and you want to have a decent amount of sort of sort of envelope of sound around what you're recording or is that just personal preference? Well, I do like the sound in bigger rooms. I think you can put speakers farther away if you want to. You know, I usually work with near fields, but I also, if they have good large speakers, I like to use those too sometimes just to check the bass um, to impress people if they come by, you know, yeah. Sometimes you get the record company to come by and I'll turn on the big speakers and I will leave the room and go listen out in the in the hallway while it's set to stun volume, you know, just so they go, wow, it sounds great. But I'm trying to protect my ears and be somewhat cautious with them. Um, but the great thing about a, a airy control room, I think it allows people to hang out for long periods of time in proximity because they don't get yeah. too claustrophobic. So it's a sonic thing, having, having the, the sound disperse in a wider area and uh, and just having room to feel comfortable because... Uh, a lot of the recording is done in control rooms these days. You know, I'll set a mic up. I had this mic right here set up right behind me because I record vocals and things in here. And a lot of times the bass player and the guitar player will stand in the control room right next to me and play and hear, you know, what they're hearing coming through uh, speakers versus headphones. So it just seems like that's where uh, everybody congregates is in the control room. Nice. Well, I think that takes us from the vibe to... Probably the most boring bit of gear in the studio, I might say, is the computer. I, I guess Mac or PC, you've always been a Mac guy, or, I mean, do, do you care? I'm always and will continue to be a Mac dude. Um, I don't know how to run a PC at all. I know they're still more popular than Macs, but it seems like Macintosh has really carved its way into uh, film and audio. I know a lot of people use it also for editing and movies and TV and things. So that's my choice, and I've, that's what I started on, you know, um, when the first Macintoshes came out, and maybe I just don't want to learn another curve, you know, with another computer. So I'm, I'm going to stick with Macintosh. Before you were on Mac, what, how were you recording? Are you, were you talking like tape, or what, what were you doing? I learned the old-fashioned way on tape and uh, started on a four-track mm -hmm. with my buddy Steve Marker, who's in garbage with me. Mm -hmm. 
Um, he had a little studio in his basement, and then for some idiotic reason, we decided to start a recording studio in like 1984, I think. <laughs> and we bought an eight track, and uh, we opened up a little room in a factory, uh, like a warehouse. It was 300 bucks a month rent. And we got a lot of work right away. There were a ton of punk bands in Madison, Wisconsin at the time, a very healthy music scene there. And I didn't have any idea what I was doing, nor did Steve, but we just loved music. And uh, the bands didn't know what we were doing either, so it was a good fit. <laughs> you know, I, I never went to recording school. I never had a mentor, you know, anyone who sort of taught me how to engineer or produce. Um, so I just had to sort of make it up on the fly. And... Uh, it, it was a good learning ground working with all these bands because they were very rough too and didn't know exactly what was going on. So it was just trial and error. And uh, there's a documentary on our studio called The Smart Studio Story. Mm. And if you listen to the audio through it's through the 90-minute film, it's pretty god-awful at the start. But by the end of 90 minutes, the music is sounding pretty damn good. So it's a, it's a slow learning curve for me and Steve, as well as the bands get better over that period of time too. You said you didn't have a mentor, but did, were there moments where you had sort of leaps in understanding or was it just a, a constant understanding a little bit more each time? It was really a little bit more each time. You know, I'd finish a recording and take it home and listen to it and go, man, it, the guitar sound really thin or the vocals are too buried or there's no bass. And, uh, Part of that was trying to figure out what I was hearing. And t to be fair, the studio we had was really shitty. I mean, there, there was no acoustic work at all. So you, you, could, you couldn't tell if there was bass or not because it had this big, boomy, ringing tone in the back of the room. So it always sounded like there, were you know, there was decent bass. And you'd take it home and go, there's no bass on here. So <laughs> we had to figure out ways to sort of guess at that. A lot of that was using headphones. You know, I'd turn the speakers off and pop headphones on. And, and then you got to trust your headphones too. But the band I was in at the time called Spooner with Duke Erickson, who's also in Garbage with me now. We've been together for many years. He knew a guy called Gary Klebe who worked with a band called Shoes. And they had put out a four-track recording called Black Vinyl Shoes, which is amazing. They did it in their living room with headphones on, and they got signed to Electra Records. That was a big deal. And Gary sort of took it upon us to help the band we were in. And so when we made our first record, he produced it. And uh, I did learn a lot from him because he was a studio nerd. And, you know, he'd be putting up a snare mic. Like, Gary, what are you doing with the snare? Oh, I'm putting it here because I'm trying to get rid of the hi-hat wash or whatever. So he, and he told me, he could tell that I was interested in recording and told me, hey, BV, don't put all your eggs in one basket. I can tell you're interested in recording. You're, you're not just a drummer. You know, you can be an engineer also. So do, do you remember the first record that you produced when you go, ah, okay, this sounds like a record now. That first step up in how you felt about it. The first single that kind of got some notoriety in the Madison scene was a band called Mechtmensch. And it was just a cool song, a, a, a kind of a one riff. Over and over and over again. It was called I Want to Be a Zombie. It was great. And for some reason, it turned out really good. The mix was good, the bass and the guitars, I kind of got that right. And that led to more local bands calling us. And I think over the course of two years, I did a ton of like singles and cassettes and uh, EPs. And then I got a call from a band that was from Minneapolis, but they had moved to Madison called Sometimes Why. And they asked me to produce the record. And uh, that was the first proper album that I did 
all the way through. And, and it sounded pretty good. Um, that was probably about three years into the studio. So a, a lot of the trial and error was was uh, starting to go on a positive note. You know, I was starting to figure things out. And uh, that record turned out good. And also, because they were from Minneapolis, then we started getting bands from Minneapolis coming down to, uh, to Madison, too. So it was a slow-growing process, and it just kept getting wider and wider. So back to the uh, Forever Studio gear list. We've got the Mac. We're next to Rick Rubin, or we've kicked him out, something. We'll figure that out. And... Uh, Next free item, um, before we get to your six, is the audio interface. Do you have a preference there? I just use my DigiDesign Pro Tools interface. Um, I've experimented with a lot of them, but it works fine for me. So I'm not going to get too fussy. As long as I've got enough inputs and outputs to uh, tr- tr- track uh, an entire band if I need to, um, I'm good with it. I mean, uh, immediately, I'm going to want to upsell your dreams which is something we do on the podcast. Can we not upsell you to something more fancy than that, surely? Sky's the limit. You're doing a big upgrade on your computer anyway, so let's... Well, I mean, I'm trying to think what other ones I've used. I've used Apogee before, which is good. Um, I, there was an interface I used when I worked with Muse, and Matt Bellamy swore it was the best interface. Oh, and then Matt went crazy with the clock, too. Oh, he said, you have to get this atomic clock because everything sounds better. Now, that clock, I think, was like $40,000. <laughs> I can't remember. There we go. I think we've up- I think we've upsold the dream. You've got to get that at the atomic clock. <laughs> now, but to be fair, Matt is brilliant. I mean, he's a brilliant musician. He's just incredibly talented. And he can hear things really, really well. So he's probably right. That was the best clock in the world. But uh, I can't remember what the, the converters were, you know, um, but I'll go with Apogee. I have used those before, and I think they sound good. So Apogee, but we'll be kind and give you a 40,000 atomic clock to, to clock the Apogee with. There we go. <laughs> I wish I could remember the name of it, yeah. But the, see, well, I guess there's budget's unlimited, Budget right? Budget is so, unlimited. You know? The only limit is the amount and no bundles. No bundles. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, and the next free item is... Um, your DAW. Your DAW, which I, I, I'm going to guess is Pro Tools, right? Yeah, I'm, I, Pro Tools, uh, HDX. Or I'm, I'm using the Ultimate HDX. Did you try any other doors before Pro Tools? I mean, it is the standard for studio work, but... It is. You know, I've worked on other DAWs uh, every now and then get Logic sessions um, and have worked on Logic, too, Um a lot of people think Logic is best for programming, and I probably agree with them. But for me, the best uh, DAW for recording and editing sound is Pro Tools. Part of that is I know it so well, I'm really fast on it, and uh, I don't want to have to know and learn multiple different DAWs and bounce between them. So when I get sessions that are in Logic or Ableton, I always transfer everything into a, a Pro Tools session just because I know how to use it really quickly. And I guess that's sort of the the thing of having the shortest distance between knowing what you want to achieve and actually getting there which is DAW is a kind of a, a kind of a boring thing like you don't want to be thinking about how to use it right yeah it just it'll slow you down you know uh, the, the funny thing is with Pro Tools when I'm working really quick sometimes I'll accidentally hit a key that I'm not supposed to hit you know because I'm just my fingers are flying and then something will freeze up or lock like or like the timeline won't follow it doesn't stop it just keeps going and go damn it what happened and I have to click on 
YouTube and go, what happens when Pro Tools does this? And you'd be surprised, man, every single problem there is on any DAW comes up and I go, oh yeah, I got to hit command splat N or whatever. And then it goes back <laughs> to following the timeline. So, um, so I don't know every key command on uh, Pro Tools, but I know enough to, to work very quickly on it. And I guess that's one of the, the things as well with Pro Tools is that because it's, you can't change the key commands, it's always going to be like, you can do this with this key command. As I've just the... learned that now. You can't change the key commands in Pro Tools. That's nuts. No, that's the whole point. Yeah. Because you can be an engineer or a producer and go from studio to studio and not worry about key commands. That's kind of the idea. Yeah. Allegedly. Yeah. Or you can be like me and then be really worried because you can't load your Cubase key commands. <laughs> well, a, a friend of mine, Brian Daly, who's an engineer producer from Madison, has designed a keyboard so you can set your own key commands and it works with any DAW. Like he kept trying to get me to give me one to use in my studio here. But I was like, yeah, but then I got to change everything. I have to reprogram it. And I thought about it for a while. Maybe I should do that because then I could put things exactly mm. where I want them and especially the, the key commands that I use a lot. But again, I couldn't be bothered. It seemed like it would have, the learning curve just to set up a new yeah uh, a key command like that was going to take weeks. So, but but he's, Brian, they're, they're great. I know a lot of people yeah. who use them. The, mu the muscle memory as well. But then also try, you know, try writing a document on that keyboard if everything's pointing to something else surely this is going to be an absolute nightmare if you need to like write an email this is game over yeah or, or how to even uh, label a file you know sometimes <laughs> yeah, you print exactly. a file and you want to write uh, rough mix number yeah. six uh, on the date or whatever the title of song and you could spend yeah. an hour trying to figure out how to do it with the new uh, keyboard like the, uh, like the enigma machine <laughs> <laughs> exactly <laughs> Okay, right, so there's your free items. The free items are down. We've got a Mac, we've got Pro Tools, and we've got um, an Apogee with some crazy expensive clock. So we're on to the six items in your Forever Studio. So item number one, what's it going to be? Some speakers, some headphones, I guess. No, I'm going to start with the heart and soul. Uh, I'm going to pick a console because I still love consoles. And I would take the vintage Neve from Sound City, the 8028. Nice. But I can't because Dave Grohl won't give it up. Well, you can, you could, you can have that though. I can't. No, I tried. I tried you guys. I tried to, I tried to get away from him and he won't, he won't let it go, man. He'll kick my ass if I try to steal it from him. So I'm going with a seventies vintage API, probably a 3288 nice. because I think they're incredible consoles. I, I love the EQ in them. They can be real clinical, and they can also be super yeah. vibey. The preamps are great. Um, the sound just passes through them in a really good way. Uh, I've, I've done a ton of records, um, vintage APIs, and I love them. I've got in my studio here, I've got some API lunchbox preamps and EQs, and uh, they're, they're awesome. They're, and they're, they're very rock and roll, too. I think that's one of the reasons I love APIs. Yeah, I mean, they make drums sound fantastic just straight going through. And doesn't doesn't Dave Grohl have the have a uh, one in his home studio? He did a record on the one on one of the modern APIs, didn't he? Uh, I produced that, yeah. And thirty two oh eight or the sixteen oh eight, maybe. I think it was the sixteen oh eight. I think it was either sixteen or twenty four channels, or he might add two sixteens. I can't remember. Oh no, sixteen and a sidecar. They they do a sidecar for it, don't they? That's right. I think it's. I that. think that's what yeah. it was. Yeah. I will say this: the mm. they the new APIs sound really good. The 
EQs and preamps are the same. You know, you can sort of mix and match whatever you want to put in the in the chassis. But the new ones do not have the headroom that those vintage consoles ah. had in the 70s. Like you could pin the music and those old APIs completely flatten it going through the stereo bus, and it still sounded good. Right. Like it had this sort of nice compression built within the console. It never got raspy or scratchy. Mm-hmm. And with the new ones, we found we had to be careful with that. Like okay. if you started really hitting the meters, like going plus five or plus six over zero VU, you could start to hear a little bit of riz on the top end. So we had to be very cautious about that. So I, I don't know, you know, what the difference is when the transformers or the circuitry going through the master section, but it's not the same as it was in those vintage consoles from the 70s. Interesting. That's why I'm going for a 70s vintage console. <laughs> nice. And how many, what, what, how many channels are you, are you going for there? Is there a limit? 32. 32, 32. is good. Yeah. 32. 32. Okay. And you've got the 2500 as well built in the bus compressor. Is this something that's a favorite of yours? Is that another reason for the console? Yeah, I mean, I, I love that API compressor too. It's it's great, very musical and very flexible in terms of uh, how you want a hard knee or a soft knee and the attack and release time. And uh, it's also, you can hit that pretty hard and it's it, it sounds good. Um, I also use... Um, the API uh, EQs and compressor as plugins too. You know, I think they also sound mm-hmm. really good. But if I had my choice, I would go with a, a hardware unit. Nice. Cool. Item number one nice. is down. Here we go. All right. Item number two. You're going to have to hear something. Item number two. You have to hear what the fuck you're doing. So I'm taking <laughs> barefoot MM27s. And... I've been using them now for probably 10 years or so, right? Have they been around that long? I guess so. I'm looking at a pair yeah. right now in my studio. Yeah. I have two pairs, actually. I have a pair here, and then I have a pair in row cases that I send around when I'm doing a project somewhere else because I just know the speakers and I really trust them. Um, there's something about the mid-range quality in the barefoots that I can hear really clearly. Uh, like if I push up a guitar a quarter dB, I can hear that move. Uh, and it's really, hmm. uh, the, the mid-range to me is, is almost the most important thing in making records because that's where a lot of the definition of almost all the instruments is. You know, getting bass right is important. You know, getting the real top end, the air right is important. But a lot of times there's a lot of information going on in the mid-range between guitars, transients on drums and vocals and keyboards. And uh, and I really find that the barefoots work for me. And um I don't want to be too controversial here, but uh, how do you find the reliability? Because uh, I remember early on, a lot of, especially DJs out in LA that I would go and see, they were kind of on the barefoots in the US and then the European DJs and producers would be on Focals. And uh, I remember a lot of them having problems with them blowing them up, but that could just be DJs. (laughs) Well, yeah, they have really good bass, uh, but they're not meant to be used in a club setting, I think. You know, as loud as they will go, um, you know, they they don't have an extra subwoofer with them. I think if you're going to do that, you should get an additional subwoofer if you really want to crank the low end in a room. No reliability problems? They might have been very reliable. I have the old school pair. The other pair I have is the newer pair where you can switch the different settings you know, you can set one for an NS10. You can sort of, you can give it a scoop if you want, which sort of heightens uh, the top yeah. end and the bottom end. Um, but I always leave those on the flat setting too. I just because I know what the mid range is like in the 
in the flat setting. But speaking of the other speaker, that's my uh, auditional pair here is the folk owls or however you say them. I've got a small pair. Um, yes. Is my auxiliary speakers here in my studio? So I flip between the barefoots and then the focals. Nice, but we could, no bundles. We can only have the one set. So you're going for the barefoots. Okay, so I'm I'm sticking with the barefoots, the MM twenty seven. Which MM twenty sevens? Okay, which uh, focal focals are those? Are those the alphas or are those something a little bit bigger um, and nicer? They're the CMS six point five. Right, okay. they're like little near fields. Nice, and it's interesting you say about not actually messing with the the voicing control on the micromains, is it just you prefer the mid-range sound of the... Yeah, I don't find the the EQ curves to be able to switch between them that useful for me. When when you get the scooped one, which heightens the top and bottom, or, or basically just cuts some of the mid-range, it sounds hyped more like maybe a master would, you know, if, if someone's going to suck some of the low mid-range out. Um, and I have never liked NS10s, ever. Uh, it used to drive me crazy. You'd go in a studio, and there'd be the NS10s. They just have all this horrible <laughs> mid-range. And I always found that when I worked on them, I never mixed the guitars loud enough because there was so much point in that like two two point five k range or whatever that the guitars always sounded soft when I took them, you know, out to other studios. So I started working on a lot of other speakers. I worked on. Uh, Tannoys over the years, and uh, Genelex, and Adams. And so when I would go into other studios, if they had NS10s, I would take my own speakers. I was just about to uh, say, let's do some NS10 chat, because it's always like, it's always a love-hate. It's like they're, they're proper Marmite speakers, we would say in the UK. Like You either love them or you hate them. Like, <laughs> there's people that swear by them, but yeah. <laughs> I'm starting to feel like, especially with our podcast, there's more people that hate them than like them, right? I think we're more haters than lovers which is good we need to move on from the ns10 (laughs) do you remember the ns10 story about bob clear mountain he used to mix with them but he put tissue paper over the tweeter that's right yeah and now so then i would go into studios and people would have the tissue paper over the (laughs) tweeter and i'm like then tweeter there must be something wrong with it if you have to put (laughs) tissue paper over it you know but you have to admit, Bob Clearmountain is a genius of a mixer. He, he mixed some <laughs> yeah. incredible sounding albums. And uh, so whatever Bob did, we were going to do that too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, li- I like the idea that it's it's like, it's nothing to do with Bob Clearmountain. It was just we didn't know about that tissue paper trick. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I- I'm still doing the tissue paper thing and I'm still not as good as Bob Clearmountain. What is going on? <laughs> <laughs> That's the only um, difference. <laughs> so what's that? Where are we at? Item number three? We're coming up on three, but before we get there, in terms of translation, I noticed that some of those earlier records like Nevermind and Siamese Dream, some of the tracks on there, they don't have a massive amount of width. And I wondered, what was the thinking there? Yeah, you know, I used to do that. I used to mix um, wide stereo mixes. And... You know, if I had left and right guitars, I'd put them hard left and hard right. But I was very conscious of things going to radio, especially if it was a single I went to MTV, because a lot of TVs back then had a, a mm. mono speaker. And if you have something panned hard left or hard right, it, it's 3 dB quieter when it goes to mono. So I would usually pan things, like instead of going completely wide, I'd say going to uh, 10% or whatever the term would be, I would go to uh, like 7%, 
you know, I would tuck him in a little bit. So there's still some stereo, but when you hit the mono button, you, you wouldn't completely collapse and lose them. And sometimes I would do, I would mix a whole album that way. But then for my own joy, I would do a stereo mix that I would have. But inevitably, those never really made it onto the records because people were always concerned that it would translate to a, a mono radio and, and mono TV. Nowadays, I think you don't have to worry about that so much because almost all TVs have stereo speakers. Do you think uh, any of those records in, in that version will see the light of day? Do you think there'll ever be any re-releases or remastered? I mean, uh, Maybe. I mean, possibly. I, you know, I think when we did, uh, when Billy Corgan re-released Siamese Dream, I think he went back to the original, like the mixes, and we went for the widest stereo. I, I haven't listened to him with headphones, but I bet if you compare that to the original CD, it's got a, a, a wider sonic spectrum to it so there's these things all exist then you've got like the the wide boy versions of all of these <laughs> era defining records yeah where where do these live do you have them somewhere uh well some of them are here yeah i've got uh, uh in, in the side of my studio here and in the back i have a closet with a lot of uh master tapes and uh dats and uh and some i used to burn i'd put them on cds and, and i'd just file them away um, the tapes, obviously, if I was going to pull those out, I'd have to bake them because some have been sitting there for 20-plus <laughs> years. You know? The idea of all of this like music there is kind of, kind of exciting. If you're into music production, you should also check out musictech.net. There you'll find impartial gear reviews, the latest product news, and tutorials for honing your craft, plus producer interviews and under-the-hood track breakdowns. And for those of you wanting to master your recording software, head to the Music Tech YouTube channel, where we have free courses in Logic and Ableton Live delivered by our expert trainers, with more DAWs coming soon. Thanks for listening. Let's get back to the show. So, item number three. What are we going for next? We've got a desk. We've got some badass monitors. There has to be a way to capture what you're recording, so I'm going with a microphone next. And at first I thought I would go kind of old school and like utilitarian and go for like a Shure SM7, which if I had to go to a desert island, that would probably be the microphone I took because you could drop it in the ocean and take it out and the damn thing would still work. But for Sonics, I'm going to go with a 1959 Ela M250. And I have one. It came out of RCA Studios and... We're pretty sure that Elvis Presley sang on what? it. It's a pretty special sounding mic. It's, uh, I, you know, there's something kind of uh, wrong with it. Um, in the top end, it's almost like there's a little extra distortion, but it's super musical. So it gives everything a, like there's a steam that comes out of things, especially singers. When I had a, the power supply on it about six or seven years ago, worked on, I sent it in, and the, the Mike Tech, who is, who's a super guru from Nashville, looked at it, and he wrote me back this letter and said, he's never heard a, an Elam 250 that sounds like this. He goes, it's kind of effed up, but it's really, really special. And I've used that with uh, Dave Grohl and with Billy Joe and with Shirley Manson on I can't tell you how many things, and... Uh, I have it here in my studio, but I don't. It's it's in a, a road case. I don't pull it out unless it's a, a real proper session. I did use it here when I was uh, finishing the Silver Sun Pickups record because I worked with them 
on their last record, as well as Five Billion in Diamonds. We did some of the vocals here, and I pulled pulled it out for them. But otherwise, I leave it in the case because my daughter comes down here and runs around, and I don't want her friends to knock over a $15,000 mic or whatever it costs. That's an amazing... So how did you find out that they were were selling it, or did you approach them? Because that's the thing with with items like that. They it's just just finding them you know even if it's even if you're able to afford it financially it's like it's getting hold of the damn things uh well i I remember exactly how i got it i was in new york working with freedy johnston who's a singer songwriter who i'm very good friends with and and we were working on this record uh this perfect world and uh at one point we went into sear sound and uh, i don't know if you ever knew walter sear he had one of the best mic collections in the world he was a super audio gearhead, and uh, the first day when we wanted to do vocalists with Freedy, John Sickett, the engineer, set up like an M49 and a U47 and a U67, and I can't even remember, like five or six different mics, and a friend of John's had brought by the uh, Elam to set up, and, and we set that up, and and uh, Freedy went by and sang like a, a verse and chorus, you know, just to, as a warm-up on each mic. And it got to that mic, and John and I both went, "Wow, that sounds great." What's that? And we're looking. Oh, that's the that's the Elam two fifty from Mark Russell. His friend Mark Russell said we could we should check it out. I think he rented it for like seventy five bucks a day or whatever, but it sounded so good we decided to use it. And about a week and a half later, uh, Mark called me and said, "Are you interested in buying that mic?" I said, God, it sounds great. Um, how much do you want for it? And he, and he went, mm, $6,500. And I was like, oh, I can't afford that. That's that's just too much for a microphone. And I said, oh, let me think about it. He goes, I'll call you tomorrow. So the next day he calls back and he said, well, do you want the mic? Because Brian Adams wants it and Lou Reed wants it. And I said, <laughs> I'm taking it. Those guys are not getting that microphone. I'll write you a check right now for 6500 bucks. There was no way Brian Adams or Lou Reed was going to get that microphone. That's an amazing story. That's great. That's, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, the mic, it, it's a special mic though, man. It's Like I said, it's got something in the top end that just gives everything this really lovely, like compressed steam. Uh, hard hard yeah, to describe, yeah. but it's... It's a, it's a beautiful sounding mic. I don't know that I would put it next to a snare drum or kick drum. You know, I have used it on room mics before, um, but it sounds great on piano, acoustic guitar. You can put it in front of a, a guitar cabinet, um, particularly good in strings and vocals. And it, it's a, it's a very unique sounding. And can you think of a specific track where you might be able to really hear the sizzle on it? Well, if you listen to, uh, God, pretty much all of version 2.0 of Garbage, that's the, that's the Elam. Um, Freedy's uh, record, uh, This Perfect World, everything was sung with the Elam. Um, you could probably check that out on Spotify and uh, just hear. He, he has a great voice. He's got a little bit of a, uh, a country twang to it, but um, you, you, it's it's very plaintive, and that mic really captures his voice in detail. And interesting also to have an, an Elam 250 because everyone raves about the 251. Not and it's not the 250 that people talk about so much. Well, the 251s are easier to find, and uh, there's also a lot of 251s now clones that are that sound really good. Um, yeah, but there's just something about that one. Um, I don't know what it is uh, that sounds really, really special. You know, after I had worked with Dave Grohl, we finished uh, 
Uh, James Brown and I, the engineer, we bought Dave a 251 for uh, his birthday. Um, but it, it was it's one of the new ones, you know, one of the clone ones. And it sounds great. I can't remember who, what it, whether it was Wonder Audio or one of them. But, it, you know, it was a couple thousand dollars. And uh, the vintage ones we looked at, but they were crazy expensive. So, and, and the, the new ones sound good. Like I told you guys, I've got my, right here, my uh, U47 clone. And it sounds really, really good. What what's that? Where are we up to? Item number four. So we got we got a console, we got some speakers, we got a mic. Next up, I like to control the level of things when I'm recording them. And so it's gonna be a compressor. And my initial thought went to a classic eleven seventy six, which is a, a brilliant brilliant compressor you can't go wrong with it because it's really musical you can adjust it tack and release times but i started thinking about it and i decided to pick a summit tla 100 which is one of my favorite compressors i use it when i can every time i record a vocal as i'm talking to you guys right now this is going through a, a summit tla 100 there's a smoothness to it. I think you can really compress things with that compressor, and it puts it up in your face, but it never gets um, harsh like some compressors do. I don't know that I would use it on a on a snare drum or uh, or a kick drum, um, but I've used it on bass. I've used it on guitars, acoustic guitar, and it's particularly good with vocals. And so, where did you first use a, a TLA 100 when? What was the the setup there? I remember. Let's see. I want to say it was probably around 1989. I got a call from this guy Michael Papp in Wisconsin. I think he lived in Waukesha or Wausau or Stevens Point, somewhere a, a smaller town. You know, like an hour and a half outside of Madison. And he said, "Yeah, I've got this uh, audio gear I'm working on, and I've got this compressor. It's a TLA 100. Uh, how about if I drop it by and you check it out?" I'm like, "Sure." And uh, he brought it by Smart, and uh, we plugged it in, and I just fell in love with it instantly. At the time, we were very much a budget studio. We had a lot of DBX-160s. I think we had one 1176. Um, we had one LA-2A. Uh, but we had a lot of cheap compressors, you know. And, uh, and the first time I heard the TLA-100, it just had such a creamy kind of sound to it. It's just really, really smooth. And uh, as I said... I love it on vocals. And when someone sings, it immediately kicks down minus 10 dB. I do not shy away from the compression. It's like I want it to just sit right in your face. The only thing you have to be careful with uh, with the TLA-100, as with other compressors, is it can bring out the sibilance. So sometimes you may need to DS. But if you want to take a vocal and put it in the track and just let it sit there and, and barely have to ride it at all, it's perfect for doing that. So right now because you're going through one, are you DSing as well, or are you just like a naturally S-less person? You guys are going to have to DS me. <laughs> so sorry about that. <laughs> naturally S-less. I like that as a thing. <laughs> she sells <laughs> seashells by the seashore. That, that's a well, good, you can use that to, to plug in the DSer. <laughs> yeah. Perfect, yeah. The nice. reason I ask is that this is a thing. I have a, like a, a whistly S and I have to DS myself constantly. I have to DS on the way and often I have to DS in post and it's it's a pain. I like certain people just are a bit more S-y than others. And if, to have like, so I aspire one day to be an S-less person that I can control my <laughs> S's perfectly. Well, you have to just speak in words that don't contain S's, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah, write those lyrics like that. That's the thing. <laughs> I'm going to have to think so hard about everything I say going forward to, to avoid S's. But I'm, I'm here for it. I'll, I'll work on that. Item number five. We're closing in now. We're closing in. Two more left. I'm going to go with a Roland Space Echo, either just the regular Space Echo or the Chorus Echo, um, which is what the RE-201 or something like that. 201 for Space, 301 for Chorus, I think. It's one of the first Echoes I ever had. I still have one. They're kind of magical. Um, I like it that they don't necessarily always sync up perfectly. You know, you have to sort of move it around to get it so that where you want the delays to fall in space. Um, But they're just so amazing. They're super vibey. You know, put a little bit on a snare drum and it works. You run it to put a little slap on a vocal and it works. And I'm not a huge reverb fan. I do use reverb, of course, on a lot of things, but I have a tendency to to rely more on delays for things to sort of put them back in a track. I always feel like sometimes reverb can start to take up a lot of space. And uh, so I, I generally will defer to putting a, a tape slap on, on, a, on something, a guitar or a vocal, before I put anything else on it i've heard people use them just just run things through them without really any any delay as well just like just hitting the tape you know just just going through the circuits and it giving kind of a vibe to things especially on synths i know a lot of guys like just adding that vibe of it even if you're not going too mad on the reverb and delay settings it's uh yeah the cool thing about them is that the gain stage on them is quite musical too you can get a little bit of crunch and a little bit of attitude, but it never gets super harsh, you know. So you can vibe something up, even if even if you're barely using the echo, it can just instantly vibe up a, a voice or instantly vibe up an instrument. So when did you discover that? Um, and did I mean, do you own one now? I still own one, and uh, the first delay unit we ever had at Smart was the Echoplex, and that was great, but it was a little more uh, tricky. Um, getting it set, you know, the little, if you remember what the Echoplex is like, it had a little slider, you'd slide back and forth. The tapes seemed to uh, break quite often. I mean, you'd have to open it up and try to install it, or we would try to fix it ourselves and splice the tape. Um, the Rollins, to me, were just more sturdy and a little bit more flexible in terms of uh, what you could do with them, especially if you had uh, uh, one of the Rollins that had echo, reverb, and chorus, because you could do a lot with that, you know, and... Uh, and again, they were quite magical because they would glue things together and they would vibe up even the, the most simple track if you just ran it through it. And you talked there about using it on a snare drum. And one of the things you're known for is awesome drum sounds. You did the Native Instruments pack just recently. So like, what were some of those things where you got to be the mad scientist in the studio and make cool noises? Well, the Native Instruments drum thing I worked on was uh, really fun for one thing because it was total lab rat, just doing whatever I wanted. And uh, I, I sort of tried to make the drum sound a little bit more electro rock leaning, you know, less hip hop or, or organic sounding. And I used a lot of uh, analog stomp boxes. I, I had my Roland plugged in, like I sometimes you add a little bit of a slap echo rather than reverb, and you barely hear it, but it gives it some body and some depth. I also used a ton of Stompbox pedals. You can't really see them here, but I've got um, Graphic Fuzz and Woolly Mammoth and Hyper Fuzz and uh, a, a ton of little Stompbox pedals that I used. Again, there's not a lot of uh, 
big, like super roomy drum sounds and the butch fig drums. There's a lot of stuff that's gated or chopped or uh, manipulated. So it's, it's really punchy, but it doesn't have a lot of super long sustain. Of course, you can do that anytime. You can always add more reverb or whatever to it. But a lot of that was uh, a combination of tweaking the drums in Pro Tools with, with plugins um, and then also routing it through the Stompbox pedals and then rerunning them all back. At the end of the day, I wrote, wrote everything, or routed everything through my Neve 1081, which I have over here, and then that printed back into Pro Tools. So I couldn't tell you, there was not one specific one, but I, I had a lot of different um, templates and things that I could mix and match as I was working on the drum sounds. It was really fun. And so important to be going through the, the Neve then as well for that coloration, or was that just for sort of tonal sculpting? What, what were you doing there? Um, for both, for coloration. And at the very end, if I wanted to add more EQ, like top or bottom or cut some mid-range, whatever, I could just insert that. Um, but that was last in the chain and went back into the right. Pro Tools when I printed. Okay. I'm just back on the delay question as well, because space delays aren't super difficult to get hold of. But would you turn to a plug-in version just for repeatability ever? Or is there something about the tactility of the actual space echo that makes a difference? Well, I use the plugins. Um, you know, Waves makes great plugins. Uh, UAD makes awesome plugins. Um, but I have a tendency if it's available to use the analog one, because I feel like they're a little less predictable and uh, just sonically and uh, I, I don't know, there's something about it, that a real analog sound that to me has a, a, a sort of a definitive glue to it, if that makes any sense. Um, I, you know, I'm sure some people will, you know, some people could line up a, an analog rolling and, and, and A, B that against the, a digital plugin, and they may sound exactly the same. But there's a comfort in having that little box right next to you and hearing the tape going shh in it, you know. And I love to grab things still, you know, a tac tactile, like grab a knob and twist it. Everybody's heard when the space echo goes wee -wee -wee -wee, and, and changes the tempo, or you, you turn up the feedback and it starts getting the wee -wee -wee -wee. you know, I love that. And you can do that in the plugins too, but I just find it's a lot more fun and, and, and interesting to do when you have a real analog unit yeah and i guess you want to do it when it's something to grab like you want to play the echo or you can do things like that where you like having a real console and playing the mixing desk when you're printing mixes it can be kind of a performance in itself well if you listen to any of the great dub records made from like the late 70s early 80s it's all about delays and uh they were all old school tape delays and and they would manipulate it in the mix. And uh, I've done that a couple times on remixes. Uh, before we started Garbage, uh, Steve and Duke and I did a bunch of remixes for Depeche Mode and Nine Inch Nails and U2 and Beck. And and uh, we always had a couple uh, rolling space echoes and sometimes an echoplex set up in the studio. And it was just fun to be able to, to sort of manipulate those in the process of when we were doing a mix. Um. Where are we at, Will? I'm, get, I'm getting lost in stories. We're at item number five or item number six? Number six. It's our last studio item. The last studio item. Uh, boy, that's a tough question. Like, what would, what would I want? I mean... Any instruments? Well, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, either a drum kit or a, a really good piano. Um, I'm going to say I, I would want a really good piano. Like a good, a good Steinway or a good Yamaha grand piano. Uh, we used to have a Yamaha at Smart Studios, and it was very bright, 
it never needed any EQ, which I thought was kind of amazing. You know, normally you have to cut some mid-range in pianos or if they sound too boxy or you have to boost the top end. And we used that Yamaha on tons of sessions and it always fit in perfectly with guitars and keyboards and bass and drums. And uh, the thing I like about having a piano in a studio is when you're trying to figure out something with a band, it's easy to go up and play a melody or play something and, and just figure it out on the spot. I'm not really a very good piano player. I, I studied piano from like first grade to sixth grade, and then I gave it up and took up drums. But I know enough to sit down and, and play chords and figure out things. And, uh, and I find that that's uh, fairly valuable to have in the studio. You know, even even though a lot of rock records don't have piano, but it, it's a, a really musical to have uh, around when you're trying to work on arrangements. So it's like a compositional aid more than uh, something to record. Yeah, and sometimes I'll go, you know, somebody will be singing, uh, and I'll go, I think you're supposed to be singing a G sharp, not a G, and they'll go, huh? And I'll go up the piano, go da 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 da, and hit the note. They go, oh, okay, you're right, it is a G sharp, and it, it helps to have a piano available. And so how much of your role is being that music theory shepherd? Well, I think I'm lucky I know enough music theory to help figure things out. I mean, there's a lot of producers I know who have no musical background training. They can't play an instrument, and they're still really brilliant because they just hear things and and say, I like this or I don't like that. And really, a great producer is just someone who has an opinion, and the artist trusts that opinion. You know, So you don't really have to have... A musical background, but it's been invaluable for me. Like I said, to just be able to quickly on the fly figure out melodies and counterpoint things and and chord structures and uh, and sometimes like helping singers figure out a melody. Um, I, I do it all the time with my daughter. She's fourteen and uh, she'll be singing something um, like working on a musical. And uh, some of the musicals are quite complicated in terms of the melodic structure because the chords keep modulating to a different key. And when it modulates, sometimes it's hard to find that scale, you know. And, and so, but it's easy when I can show her on piano and go, here it is in F, here it is in A, you know, here it is in C or, or C sharp or D, whatever. And uh, and she gets it. She can hear it right away. When you see the notes and hear it, it, it allows you to sort of train your voice to do that too. So pianos are, 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 are amazing for, uh, for that reason. I wish I could play piano a lot better because I do find it... Uh, soothing to sit and noodle around on it every now and just sort of play some random Keith Jarrett-esque chords <laughs> with a little noodly top line. Um, you know, I, I, it's it's kind of therapy. It's cool. I, th I think it's extra therapeutic when it's like a beautiful big old piano as well. Like it's, there's something about those really good quality, like, yeah, top end pianos where anything you touch just sounds lovely. And even really discordant stuff sounds just wonderful <laughs> out of them yeah, yeah yeah especially since i'm sitting in my beautiful house in malibu looking out over the ocean through giant glass windows why not have yeah, a yeah, exactly. grand piano there to noodle around on right <laughs> <laughs> the breeze just coming in yeah. oh with an open linen shirt i hope <laughs> that i borrowed from rick rubin just took it straight out of his wardrobe <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Will, do you do you want to do you want to set the scene before we get to the luxury item? What what's going on in this studio? Let's take us through it. We're overlooking the bluffs in Malibu in Rick Rubin's house with a big airy control room. Your audio is going into an Apogee Symphony connected to a Mac. We assume the most expensive Mac money can buy. 
Of course. Excellent. We're, we're running Pro Tools. And the first thing that's apparent in the studio is your giant 1970s 32-channel vintage API desk, the 3288. You're listening back on Barefoot Micromain 27s. You're recording with a 1959 Telefunken Elam 250. You're compressing with a Summit Audio TLA 100. For effects, you have a Roland Space Echo RE201. And for musical accompaniment, you have a Yamaha Grand Piano. How does that sound? It's all sounding quite glorious, especially since I've just had my third espresso from my Nespresso pod machine, which I drink about 10 of those little suckers every day. I'm, you know, I never drank coffee in high school or college until I started Smart Studios. And uh, one day my partner, Steve, said, hey, Beavy, uh, let's have some coffee. And, and he was into coffee and he made me like a mocha, which was like French roast with chocolate and sugar and stuff. And it just tasted like hot chocolate. And I loved it. And cut to about three months later, I was just drinking black French roast, as dark as it would go. <laughs> And uh, I, I drink a lot of coffee. I find that the pause to, you know, when you're working on something and trying to figure out if it's good or bad or what you should do next to be able to yeah. step away from the console and, and get a coffee is, is a good brain clear for me. So I do have to load the studio up with uh, caffeinated capsules as well as decaf capsules. Because uh, if you you know if you, if I drink caffeine all day I'll be just oh, wired by uh, eight p.m. at night. But I, I have to give you a little sidebar here. When I did wasting light with the Foo Fighters, because uh, I was really in that the Nespresso pod machine, I bought a, a coffee machine, a little Nespresso pod machine to put in Dave's uh, lounge above his garage. Dave said early on, oh, you can just go make coffee in our kitchen. And I realized we're going to be going down in this kitchen, you know, where his family lives like five or six times a day. So I said, I'm just going to get one and I'll put it right in the corner here. And uh, I didn't know how many pods to get. So I ordered 500. <laughs> and they were gone in three weeks. You know, I every time because I would have like eight to ten a day, but everybody would join me in the band. You know, there were a couple, there was two engineers, and then the whole band was there. And they go, "Oh, BV's having a coffee. Let's all get one." And psh, we're all running the little the little pod maker. And uh, yeah, after three weeks, and then I ordered another five hundred, and those were gone in three weeks too. So we drank a shitload <laughs> of coffee making wasting light. <laughs> So uh, th- just just to just to give up, this is your luxury item for the studio is a a, a Nespresso capsule machine. Yes, with un- unlimited capsules, obviously. Yes. Yep. Yeah, forever amount of a forever amount of decaf and a forever amount of of caffeinated. That's correct. Capsules. Yeah. Okay. Nice. So is it all like black now? Do you do you only drink dark roast still, or is do you have a different preference these days? Yeah, I like dark roast, uh, and particularly French roast or Italian roast. Uh, there's a lot of coffees out that have this sort of peculiar mid-range to me, and I'm not really a big fan of mid-range uh, in coffee. <laughs> I just I sort of like the French roast because it sort of tastes burnt on the top and then it's just got this richness on the bottom, and, and it has no mid-range. It's like like the 80s rock record, so it's all been sucked right out. So, <laughs> um, you know, I'll, I'll drink it with a little 
a splash of almond milk or oat milk. Um, and sometimes I might add a little honey, but I can just drink it straight black too if need be. I do like that line. I like my coffee like I like my 80s rock records. <laughs> <laughs> no mid-range. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a great way to end the podcast. <laughs> I like my coffee like I like my 80s rock records. Well, thank you so much, uh, Butch. It's real being an honor and uh, yeah, really great to chat to you. Yeah, you guys, this is really fun. I I thoroughly enjoyed it. Great pleasure. Thank you so much. Peace. If you're a fan of our My Forever Studio podcast, make sure you subscribe using your favorite podcasting app and maybe give us a luxurious five-star rating. We appreciate every single review. Yes, we do indeed. Joining us next time is engineer Danny Bennett Sprague, whose credits include Indian rock titans Noel Gallagher, The Amazons, Jarvis Cocker, Baxter Drury, and even The Rolling Stones. I wonder if Danny's rock and roll roster of clients will influence her Forever Studio. Hmm... You'd think it would, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we'll be finding out next week. Thanks for listening and catch you next time for more escapades in Studio Foreverdom. Bye-bye. <laughs>